Chris Sidier from Baird Family Wealth Group, and I have with me today Brian Bolio. As promised, we are following up with all of the questions that had remained from the recent webinar that we did on November 10th. Before we go into those questions, I thought it would be helpful just to review what Brian's uh, uh, comments were in, in a summary fashion uh, and what his outlook was for the, uh, uh, the markets and the economy. So Brian believes that the long-term positive economic fundamentals and trends for the United States are far more important than the short-term impact of COVID or which political power party is in power. He emphatically stated during the webinar that COVID is a natural disaster, not an economic disaster. While the stock market may not perform as well, should the Democrats end up in control, the United States is set to outpace all other countries during the global economic recovery. Brian also suggests that we are moving through an asset price bubble, reflective of the economic reality of enormous government stimulus benefiting both the housing and stock market. The sheer magnitude of the stimulus could push these markets much, much higher. However, caution is warranted as they are overvalued. In this environment, Brian believes it will be important to closely follow two concepts underpinning the strategies employed by the Baird Family Wealth Group. One, valuations always matter. And two, money has a way of going from where it is to where it isn't. Brian is looking for the economy to completely recover by mid-2022, with the upward trend in the cycle to continue through 2023. He is expecting the strongest economic performance to occur in the second half of 2023, then slowing through 2024. One potential side effect of the stimulus that he is now seeing is the increased potential for a severe downturn in 2025 through 2026. His forecast for depression in the 2030s remains unchanged. With that, we'll get to the questions that were left over. There were quite a few of them. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Um, I'm gonna do my best to avoid being in a depression until 2030. Um, I should have added that it's an economic depression in the 2030s rather than some sort of mental funk. I'm doing my best as well to avoid the mental depression that comes with these times. But uh, that your commentary is always uplifting, so I think that that will, uh, um, will will help us avoid that at least for now. So let me start with the first question. Um, the the you gave a lot of information on different um, some of the different industries. Some of those questions were asked already, but but one thing in particular that uh, we didn't spend too much time on. I think you had a slide related to it. But what is the outlook for residential construction? Um, how does the Midwest and Texas compare uh, to other regions nationally? I mean, is there a region that's doing better than others? Um, and really, what, the, what this person would like to know is where uh, in the ABCD business cycle is this segment currently? The, uh, I'll work my way back through that, okay? The uh, segment is in phase B of the business cycle using ITR's ABCD. It is in phase B. And there is concern about whether it can be sustained there, not on our part by others, because uh, after December, the, some of the forbearance issues come into play. <clears throat> I think it's gonna impact other markets more than it will housing. Texas, Midwest, um, strong. Um, the South is also strong in general, and the Southeast is, is quite strong. Really, uh, the, only, the only place that's weak right now, and it's a relative term, it's weaker than its colleagues would be the Northeast. But very upbeat about what's going on and what we see for trends. Um, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, um, and 
take it on down through to uh, Texas. There's some really good trends going on there. And we expect that that trend is, it won't remain in phase B, but the data is going to continue to improve and we'll have ongoing recovery uh, through 2023. So let me, let me follow up on that question because there's another uh, question that was is somewhat related. You mentioned, mentioned the forbearance. Um, with um, lots of home and business mortgages not currently being paid to the banks, mortgage companies, uh, because of job layoffs or businesses being bad, um, when do you think that these notes have to be called by the banks? I don't know the answer to when they have to be called. I think uh, the question that I've had conversations about with my banker friends is, are they really interested in owning that business or are they interested in finding a way to work with this business owner or manager uh, to, to get the business back on its feet? Do you really want to own these homes or are you going to be the neighborhood guy? Uh, so it really depends on the bank. And I'm not sure that there's been, and I know people use the word a lot, a whole lot, and, but I haven't seen any hard numbers. When I look at homeowner vacancy rates, uh, exceedingly low. When I look at what's going on with the vacancy numbers in the uh, multifamily market, um, but not as bad as we were during the Great Recession. I haven't, when the, I talk to clients, I'm not hearing that they're experiencing the dire credit conditions that some people have experienced. In other words, if they're in real estate, they're still collecting their rents uh, at nearly the same pace that they were before COVID. And you referenced the unemployment, Chris. Uh, unemployment's down to 6.6% already from the high of just under 15% during COVID. And if you do the math, that means, yes, there's still about 4.3, 4.4 million people unemployed that had a job before COVID. But most people think there's still tens of millions of people unemployed because of COVID, and that just is no longer true. And I think understanding those numbers puts the uh, risks of vacancy issues into perspective. So j just a, a follow-up for me personally on that. So th there are some that would say that, all right, well, given what the Fed has done um, and trying to, to work to protect the banking system, that some of that um, damage or, or bad loan or bad debt it will, will take time to, to work out so that it might be coming um, next year or the year after. It sounds like what you're saying is that there might be a higher probability that um, because of the, the, the economy growing again, that we can work our way out of that. Is, is it, am I hearing you correctly? You are hearing me correctly. And I also, uh, and I thought you were leaning this way initially with the way you phrased that. Uh, this is a very dovish Federal Reserve led by Chairman Powell. Um, it is not, he would not see it as beyond his responsibility to make sure that the liquidity is there, the credit markets are fully functioning, and he'll have another infusion of capital if he needs to, to avoid any uh, problem in this arena. That's, so, both ways. We're gonna have uh, Federal Reserve comfort, and we're gonna have an economy growing out from underneath the problem. So I'm going to follow up in a second with some questions around the Federal Reserve and stimulus. But I, I want to just, since we're talking about um, you know, real estate in general, I just want to ask an, one more question on that. Is, as it relates to commercial real estate specifically, um, what early canaries in the coal mine would you see for this sector? You know, 
Commercial is such a, a broad category, Chris. Uh, I'm hesitant to answer that. If commercial is office space and retail, uh, but you know, the canary's dead, okay? Uh, <laughs> Can we get a new one? <laughs> we'll get a new one. If it's uh, educational construction, uh, and that's not commercial, I get that, but I mean, that's gonna be under dire straits for a couple of years. But if we're talking about warehouse construction, logistics construction, um, office building in downtown Dallas, so you're gonna go where there's a hot spot, not in terms of COVID, but in terms of economic activity, you're gonna find opportunities. In fact, the trend for warehouse construction um, is in double digits growth still, partially fed by COVID, right? Not everybody lost during the, uh, the COVID recession. We're looking at uh, manufacturing building construction being in, it's in phase C, it's gonna be going into phase D recession, but that's a cyclical phenomenon. And it's gonna get boosted on the way up and out by the onshoring and the shortening of supply chains and all the FDI that's come into this country. So it's a more of a cyclical phenomenon, whereas office building is much more of a longer term secular issue stemming from COVID. What, what about the manufacturing, uh, like a manufacturing facility uh, construction and you know, existing um, buildings? What, what do you see for that? Well, there's going to be uh, some refitting going on, retrofitting. Um, as we continue to automate, um, you know, that's, that means moving cells, moving lines, and, and that's going to continue. And with the PPP money, some of that's going to happen sooner rather than later. And to accommodate the additional um, demands being placed on U.S. manufacturing for the reasons I just mentioned, um, that'll be an impetus to get it done, too. I was just looking at a chart today, Chris, that uh, looked at business confidence index, rate of change, 112, uh, compared to non-defense capital goods, new orders. The confidence is in, it's rising, it's in phase B, and it leads capital goods, new orders by 12 months. And guess what? That means um, we'll get through 1Q21, and then you're going to start seeing capital goods, new orders rising again. And that's obviously good news for anybody involved with manufacturing construction. Very good news. I mean, how much of that has to do with uh, business being brought back to the United States? I don't have a firm number on, on, on that, but it, it's definitely uh, accretive to uh, the effort. Um, it, it's clear that it is going on. I just don't have a firm percentage to share with you. Okay. Since we're talking about like specific industries, I'll, I'll stay with that and, and industries coming back to the U.S. because somebody asked a specific question about um, the drug industry and healthcare. Um, uh, I think what, what the, the um, like healthcare supplies, gloves, masks, those sorts of things. What do you see in terms of the redomestication of the pharmaceutical industry and some of those items that are critical to healthcare? Is that something that's going to happen? To, to, yeah, the, the question is to what extent is it going to happen, Chris? Um, when we did a study uh, earlier this year on this issue, uh, it, the drug industry was highlighted as number one, um, but the breadth of industries probably coming back or bringing part of the supply chains back into the United States 
uh, was very broad and it ranged from textiles to pharmaceuticals. So the one industry that was particularly hard hit and, and does represent a big part of uh, GDP, I think, uh, but based on what, what I've seen or read, it about 10%. And that's the hospitality industry. And I, I think maybe the 10% has to do mostly with uh, the tourism side of that. But what, what do you see for that particular industry? I mean, when do you see that coming back? It comes back only when there, we have a, a vaccine that's efficacious and widely distributed. So our assumption there is you're talking about 2022, it's getting back on its feet, but it's nowhere near its former normal until 2023. Now, so for hospitality, they should expect that to lag by about a year. Is that what you're saying? Uh, more like two years, but yes. Two years, okay. That's what we're saying. Now, I caution people to remember that we, because we're us, we immediately think about trips to Europe or trips cross country there's going to be more local tourism going around. We're going to rediscover our own neighborhoods. By that, I mean our own slice of America, the state or the lakes up north from where uh, Milwaukee is. And, you know, that's still going to go on. It's not like uh, all the hotels are going to be bereft of business. Um, some hotels, as a matter of fact, are running at 80% occupancy, which I think is amazing. Uh, and, they're, they're saying if you're from a certain state, don't even try and get a reservation because we're not letting you in and we don't need you to come in because we're making money. This is a somewhat uh, related question. With the vast amount of recovery dollars spent already on stimulus, PPP uh, and helping the economy, this person asking the question is seeing a large amount of funding for transportation in the states scaling back and canceling projects. Do you feel this will be the new direction and less federal dollars will go to states for roads and airports? I know there were a lot of questions out there about this, but do you see federal funding for transportation, transportation declining? Unless they pass a new infrastructure bill, they being the Congress and the president, yes, because the, the funding runs out in 2020 and the states are running out of money. Now, it's interesting, the states account for most of the spend on highways, for instance, but they get their money from the federal government. It's always been thus. Um, they use other means to maintain the roads, but the feds have to come in. And both uh, Joe Biden, who's promised $2 trillion in infrastructure spend, and uh, Donald Trump, who's promised $1 trillion in infrastructure spend, they both have their eye on major infrastructure bills. President uh, Trump is his one trillion, obviously smaller than uh, Vice President Biden's, uh, is really focused on hard projects, as they're called, bridges, waterways, highways, uh, and um, high-speed rail. Whereas uh, Vice President Biden's plan is less of the, on the hardscape so to speak, and more in technology infrastructure. Uh, and so he's sort of straddling between what former President Biden, I mean, uh, Obama called infrastructure and what a lot of us think of as infrastructure. But he's also looking at improving a high speed or developing a high speed rail system uh, in the country. He's also looking at um, removing congested areas uh, 
in terms of roads and bridges, because that's good for the environment if you don't have all these cars just sitting there not going anyplace. So I, I'm pretty confident that either way, uh, we're going to find ourselves with a good size infrastructure push beginning in 21. So I know during the webinar, Brian, you spent um, a fair amount of time uh, addressing uh, the election and what happens under uh, different scenarios uh, with uh, Republicans being in control or the Democrats being in control or, or there being gridlock. What do you think about the, the, the current situation in terms of what's going on? I mean, can the challenges to the, the election and the, um, you know, is this, is it a distraction or does it have the um, potential to, to um, you know, cause a disruption? And we've got a, a runoff coming up in, uh, in, in the early part of January for Georgia. What do you see for that? And if that goes one way or the other, does it change anything that you've been talking about? There is no reason for us to change our GDP outlook if it's blue on blue, as it's sometimes called. You have a Democrat in the Oval Office and the Democratic Party controlling both parts of Congress. But there will obviously be some changes in, or likely to be changes in tax law if you have blue on blue, as opposed to if you have blue with an unaligned Congress, which would be... Um, either controlled by the Republicans, both way, both lower and upper house, or it's split, which is what seems to be likely, that it's likely going to be a Republican-controlled Senate by a slim majority, and the uh, House, as we know, is going to stay with the Democrats. So given that outcome as probable, um, I'm less inclined to worry about higher taxes in the next two years. So just to stick with that for a little bit here, I was on the phone with a client this morning who was extremely concerned about the, really the, the, what he would consider to be a crisis in developing in terms of, and, and the impact it could have on business um, should this um, challenge to what some are saying, um, depending on what side of this you're on, um, to the democratic system, um, and he was very concerned about how, you know, the ramifications of that. Can you, can you address that at all? Um, I'd like to have a, an extended conversation with your client on this topic because I haven't spoken to any of our clients that feel that with this kerfuffle going on in terms of recounting and challenging votes that they have anything but the intention of going to work the next day and making money and satisfying the consumer like they always have. That it gets to be a problem if there's mass unrest, mass demonstrations, or the system actually comes crumbling down. In that case, it's not going to matter what you do. And you want to be stocking or lining the walls behind you with gold, I suppose, Chris, under those circumstances. But this isn't the first time we've had a hotly contested election. Do, do people not remember George Bush, the second George Bush, the first time he won, he had a minority of the votes, right? And uh, the only reason he ended up carrying Florida is because the Supreme Court said they ran out of time to count the votes, not because we counted all the votes. And there was a hue and cry about stealing the election at, at that time. It, and there are other instances throughout our democratic history. 
the institutionalism of America is stronger than I think most people, this one person is anticipating at this time. Okay, so do you see things kind of coming together or, or moving beyond this period of time at, at some point in the next? Coming together. Uh, the Pew Research Center uh, has this amazing uh, study that they do. They, they interviewed adults in 2020, it was between July 27th and August 2nd. And they asked, are you very angry at the federal government? Are you somewhat dissatisfied or are you basically happy? And the percentages, how that broke down, it was 24% of people were very angry at the federal government. That's the, about the median for the last 10 years. It had been as low as 18% and it's been as high as 30%. In other words, the breakdown of how that we're angry, we're basically content, uh, we're in normal territory for the last 10 years. I think it seems worse than that because of social media. And anybody can put anything out there, whether it's true or not. And do you, do you ever, did you see that documentary, Chris, uh, put out by um, those folks about how good they are at targeting what you read based on what you've already read online? Yeah, the social network. Social network. Uh, yeah. That should be mandatory viewing, in, in my opinion. I don't know how much of it is true, but at least it awakened me to the potential of it being true and that alone was kind of scary. I think that sort of social media effort can amp up the volume, but the survey is telling me anyways, and maybe I'm being Pollyannish, that ordinary people like you and me, Chris, we're, we're gonna get past this. We're not any more angry than we were 10 years ago or any less angry than we were 10 years ago. We're no more likely to go out and beat up our neighbor because they voted for the wrong person than we were before. In terms of um, the Fed and what they're doing, you mentioned earlier that you know if things kind of got weak, that they would, you know, in the in the banking sector or or otherwise, that they would jump in again and provide you know additional stimulus. Um, you know, we're talking, you know, they're arguing still about fiscal stimulus. Um, what do you see for that? I mean, do you see an additional round of stimulus in, in, a, in the fiscal form coming, or is it going to be more from the Federal Reserve? What do you, what do you see happening? My crystal ball on that one is uh, rather opaque, Chris. I, 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 I'm more confident that the Federal Reserve would uh, belly up to the bar than I am Congress. Um, that's one of the things about gridlock is you, it's a lot more difficult when the emergency isn't right in front of you, it's more difficult to get that sort of thing passed. Let me add though, if I may, that when we look at the disposable personal income trend in the United States and the rapid decline in unemployment, it is, it is a legitimate open question whether we need another round of fiscal stimulus to uh, keep this recovery going. I know some people think we absolutely have to, um, but when you look at the actual data of the economy, where it's going, and that retail sales, are, for the last three months, retail sales were up 4.6% from where they were in 2019. I mean, the consumers out there got more than a pulse. The consumers out there running around the block. Um, I refuse to get all worried that whether we're going to have another stimulus package or not. There's a question here, though, um, that is kind of directly at, focused on the, the disposable income and, and the, 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 the person asking the question is of the belief that 
some of that was artificial and that's coming from the, the stimulus itself. Um, if you take that stimulus out, does it, does it show that there's, you know, a, a, a problem or does it show that there's a need for additional stimulus at all? I mean, like, so what happens if we don't get more stimulus? If we don't get more stimulus, we're still, at worst, we're going to be at disposable income levels equal to what we had before COVID hit. Through September, remember this, the checks were no longer going out, the spiff on the unemployment. Um, I don't know, is that still even going, Chris? I, no one even talks about that anymore. But the September DPI number, disposable personal income number, was up from August, even without any more $1,200 checks going out. Okay, we have managed to save from all that fiscal stimulus unspent $1.5 trillion just waiting to be spent. So that alone is like a whole nother round when, when the good folks of America decided that they want to let loose with that money. Um, that's a whole nother round of stimulus right there that's latent within the system. So with, with what the Fed has done and, and their sort of pledge to kind of keep doing what they need to do, um, at what point does inflation rear its head? Uh, we did a pretty exhaustive study based on all this stimulus. And obviously it's pretty easy to time when it hit. Uh, the inflation starts to become problematic uh, in 2023. Doesn't mean it doesn't go up to two, two and a half percent, but that's not problematic. That's the Fed's sweet spot, right? So they're not going to feel or see the need to raise interest rates for 21 and likely at least a good chunk of 2022. But so the, the Fed controls the very short term interest rate. And if there's inflation coming in 2023, potentially, would you expect to see um, interest rates rise or mortgage rates rise um, over the the next few years before ahead of 2023, or would you would be would it be concurrent with 2023? What would you think? Our forecast is long-term interest rates will rise between 20 and 40 bips in 2021, Chris, and uh, maybe double that in 2022. Those are rates, as you alluded to, that the Federal Reserve does not control. Those are set by the marketplace. Beginning in 23, and our forecast doesn't encompass all of 23 yet, uh, you would expect a more discernible, appreciable rise in interest rates at that time because the inflationary pressures will become more evident here in the United States anyways. But I, I just want to give some context to that, okay? It's not like we're talking about, we're going back to late 70s or early 80s levels of inflation. That's not what we're talking about at all. For reasons you and I have discussed in the past, the, the demographics don't support that. The low capacity utilization rates for most of the planet won't support that. Um, you know, mo money is one propellant for inflation. And that's clearly on steroids out there, but we're gonna need one of the other factors to click in, like the demand is finally getting where utilization rates are beginning to rise on a sustained basis. Then you're gonna start getting into more of that inflation spiral. So just so I can clarify that a little bit, like so the 10 year right now is around 85 basis points, something like that. So you're looking for that to gradually rise to about uh, 2% by 2023, and then where do you see it going from there? Higher. Okay, so the, um, 
So we would expect mortgage rates to be higher. So would that, would you, if somebody was looking to buy a house or refinance a mortgage, would, would you be telling them to, to jump, start jumping on that now and, and get that done? Or what would you be saying? I'd get it done between now and the end of 21 for sure. So what about the dollar? I mean, in that environment, um, do you see the, the dollar weakening from here? Or, um, you know, the, a particular question is asked is the, 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 the person asking was very negative on the dollar and wondering why there wouldn't be any reason that the dollar shouldn't crash to zero. Um, so I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that. Why would it crash to zero? Because of our taking on so much more debt? I wonder if that's the impetus for the question. Um, if so, um, the day the world gives up on us, it will go crashing down. But if you look at the yield curve and it's rising and it's steepening, um, then the world clearly is still betting on the U.S. of A and the dollar isn't going to go crashing down. Um, so uh, I, don't ha I don't share that concern for now. We may see that at some point in the future, but it is not probable in our opinion, for 21, 22, or 23, Chris. Um, think about it. I mean, who, the world dominant economy is the United States. The most favored currency to use is still the US dollar. And we're the king of the hill when it comes to uh, pumping out oil and natural gas. Those are not conditions that would lend themselves to uh, dollar cascading downward without some extenuating circumstance like the world loses faith in our ability or our desire to pay. So, so related to currency, um, somebody's asking about blockchain. Um, blockchain currency, I mean, I'm assuming they're, they're referring to Bitcoin or Ethereum, something like that, um, cryptocurrency. And um, is investing in that a, a defensive move in response to your longer term forecast at all? Is it, is it make sense now or maybe in the future? You know, investing is a funny word, eh? Because uh, for me, um, it's what you do with some fun money if you think you're guessing correctly on which way a particular asset's going to move. Um, I invest based on fundamentals, and the fundamentals aren't there to support uh, the cryptocurrency. Blockchain is different, mind you. Blockchain is the technology supporting all of that, and that is going to be around for uh, a long time. But the cryptocurrency, there isn't a central bank on this planet that is going to give up their sovereign right to monetary policy, which is what you would do if you allowed a private entity to really dominate with cryptocurrency. Our Federal Reserve has said, we're going to have cryptocurrency, but it's going to be distributed, created by us, and run by us. We just haven't figured out exactly how that's going to happen. So we're going to use the technology, Chris, but we're not going to, we're not going to have, the, what is there currently, like 2,600 different types, variations of cryptocurrency. That's just, that's just a, a mess out there. So it's a play. It's not an investment, in my opinion. You're the investment guru. What do you think? So you said like a play in terms of like speculative, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, um, you know, I agree with you. Blockchain is it from a technology standpoint is going to be uh, um, something that's there. I mean, Bitcoin or, you know, Bitcoin is 60, you know, all those different ones that you mentioned, it has 65% of the market. You know, what's interesting is that only 5% of all, all of cryptocurrency 
uh, actually trades uh, here in the United States. 95% of it is trading in other places. And the majority of it is in very, very small um, transactions. And, you know, so even if somebody wanted to, you know, put a, a significant amount into um, Bitcoin, it's, it's, it's not easy to do that. Um, and part of that is because it just doesn't have the institutional following yet. So firms um, like my firm Baird, I mean, you know, we, we don't really, we can't, we trade in, in uh, uh, Bitcoin or, or that sort of thing right now because it is considered to be, you know, somewhat speculative and we really don't know where the future is going for it. Um, and it just, uh, you know, it's extremely volatile. So uh, those that say, you know, is, is it a store of value? I mean, I would be concerned, you know, if you were trying to affect a transaction in Bitcoin, you know, what would be the price tomorrow or what would be the price in the afternoon versus the morning? And so it would be very difficult for, um, you know, businesses or, you know, somebody buying something to actually affect that transaction. So, so I tend to agree with, uh, with your comments on that. It has its uses. I mean, the black market in India adopted it as its official currency. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, there's uh, the, the conspiracy theories uh, abound as it, as, it relates to, uh, as it relates to the cryptocurrency. So, but it'll be, I mean, it's worth watching. It definitely, you know, it's, it's a very interesting, uh, the technology itself, um, you know, the, where we're going to, you know, uh, when we ultimately end up with, you know, digital uh, currency from countries, I think is going to be interesting uh, as well. And, and which countries tend to take the lead on that will, will be, uh, you know, Vietnam, interestingly, is a country that um, there's some that think they're, they're out in front with the, being the first country uh, likely to have a digital currency. So it'll be interesting to, uh, to watch how that develops. Um, in terms of, uh, let's uh, stay with the investment uh, for a little bit here. Um, somebody's asking particularly about their financial advisor. Their financial advisor had uh, uh, strongly encouraging them to move into European stocks, which haven't performed well over the last five years as compared to the U.S. Is he a genius or an idiot? I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. I'm just an economist. You're the uh, investment genius. I, 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 well, I, I can't say whether somebody's a, a, a genius or an idiot. I, I think that the, the thought process there is that, you know, the, the money goes from where it is to where it isn't. And if money has been in large-cap U.S. equity, particularly the large-cap U.S. growth market, then it's likely over time to flow to other assets that have not seen as much appreciation. So that could be the, um, you know, on a relative basis, what the, uh, uh, what that advisor is thinking. Um, also, if, uh, you know, they may be saying, well, if the dollar uh, is going to go through a cyclical um, you know, downturn, which we, we happen to uh, agree, not that, you know, not looking for the precipitous decline like that one individual was um, just, just the continuation of uh the normal up and down that the dollar goes through and in, uh, uh, you know, has gone through over the last 30 years. Um, and so we, we would expect a maybe gradual um, decline in the dollar. And, and so with that, maybe they're thinking that uh, European stocks would perform better, but, you know, we've looked at the data on that um, and really the, if you're going to, um, you, you can invest in, in U S companies that get the, get the European exposure and, and do well there. 
Um, if you're going to get dollar diversification, you're much better off being in the emerging markets uh, versus the uh, versus the European markets. So, um, you know, while we have some exposure to what we call uh, um, you know, traditional international, it's it's a underweight what what others might look at, and really trying to balance between uh, U.S. Uh, equities and emerging market equities. So small and large value growth in the U.S. and then emerging markets would be a, um, I think a, a better um, place to be over the, the next 10 years or so than, than having a, a big move into uh, European stocks. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have some exposure because diversification is, is always a good thing. But the, you know, if, if we're thinking the dollar declines, the, the, the reason that um, I'm not that big on that is because the euro tends to move and so does the Japanese yen very much in sync with the dollar. And so you're not going to get the kind of uh, uh, directional diversification that, that you would you would like to see out of that. So that would be what I would, I would think. Um, in terms of, you know, coming back to industry, you know, there's been a lot of pressure on the healthcare system with COVID and hospitals in particular are, are stretched. Um, what do you see as the outlook for hospitals? What do you see in terms of their spending? Um, are they going to be you know, buying new equipment or, um, or is that going to you know, be a, a challenge if you're in that industry? I think it's going to be a challenge, Chris. Um, the lack of elective procedures uh, since 2Q has really hurt, financially hurt many hospitals, many hospital groups. So there'll, there'll be some, obviously, they have to uh, maintain uh, certain capabilities, but I expect this is going to be, shall we say, a cool market uh, for the next couple of years while they repair their balance sheets and their income statements. It's ironic that in the middle of the global pandemic, our hospital system um, struggles financially. It probably speaks to perhaps rethinking our hospital system or our healthcare system for that matter, but cooler heads will ultimately prevail when COVID has passed and we can talk about that. But I wouldn't be optimistic in the short term unless it's a physician's office and you're talking about them buying some equipment, but if it's truly a hospital, not so much, not right now. Okay, we just have a, a couple of questions left, so we'll uh, be wrapping up soon. Um, in, in terms of, uh, and you answered a question like this, or you know, we both, I think, answered it. Somebody wanted to know exactly where the, the stock market was going to peak and on what day. And, um, you know, we, I don't think either one of us had a, uh, uh, a crystal ball clear answer on that, but you know, we know the market has raced up to record highs again. Um, any thoughts on, you know, how the economy and the stock market will align over the next two year time frame? Um, that, the you know, where the fundamentals are for, uh, supporting uh, valuations and you know th this particular individual wants to know particularly uh, you mentioned the optimizer um, when will that ITR optimizer that the equity optimizer be available the uh, optimizer model is currently available and that person can send me an email brian at itreconomics.com and we can have that conversation Brian at itreconomics.com. Thank you for mentioning that, Chris. Um, when, when will the valuations get back into alignment, if I could paraphrase the question? Yep. Um, 
we won't know the real valuation status until the liquidity is drained uh, out from underneath that asset price bubble that um, we you referenced earlier in the summary comments. So uh, profitability is, doesn't justify current market levels. Um, your work with the CAPE, and you had a great chart during the webinar on that, suggests that the uh, average per annum probabilities going forward are not great for fresh money going in. So you you don't put it into the large caps, for instance, and again, this is your background, not mine, but um, history shows that the market will correct downward to reline up with corporate profitability once the liquidity is no longer you know, out there in the marketplace. One of the things we've, we're looking at, Brian, is that the 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 growth side of the market has um, vastly outpaced the value side of the market. And you know, as an example of that, just on a year-to-date basis through uh, the third quarter, I think the growth side of the S and P 500 was up about you know 20 um, some percent, 22 percent, 23 percent, something like that. The value side was still down uh, on the year-to-date basis, about 13%. And you know, if you look back in the last, you know, one, three, five-year periods of time, I mean, it, it, it's pretty, you know, it, it's really quite incredible the the disparity between you know the haves and have-nots uh, within the equity market. So that and that's true both in small and uh, large-cap equity. And so, you know, I kind of look back to other periods in time and, and what happened um, at, during similar periods when, when we came out of those times. And, you know, 99 is, is kind of a, a time when things were going up and people were focused on technology and, and, you know, we went to extremely high levels. So one could certainly argue that we could go to um, much, much, much higher levels from, from where we are today. Uh, it would not be unprecedented. But what happened coming out of that is that if you if you were a like a growth investor only um, for the next seven years, uh, so all the way up to the you know 2007, you had an annualized return. You know if you were just investing in the growth side of the S and P 500 of minus five percent per year for seven years. Wow! If you had, had yeah, if you had instead switched gears and 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 maybe. Uh, and you don't want you always want to when you switch gears you you've got to be very careful uh, with tax impact um, and cost because you can have your returns wiped out very quickly if you're not paying attention to that and you're so you, we're not talking about making wholesale changes but the value side of the market for seven years uh, was up eight percent a year so eight percent a year versus minus five percent. Um, you know, again, that's the money going from where it is to where it isn't. And so something that, that folks should consider is they're you know, looking at, um, you know, where things are right now and how long do they stay in that side of the market? Because the, the market is, the S&P 500 right now is dominated by those technology names. And so that's, the, that's what we see happening here. So yeah. part so of what I, I love that, about your approach, Chris, is you don't, it's never all or nothing with you. It's, a gray, gray gradients of risk and gradients of emphasis rather than uh, black and white in terms of all or nothing one way or the other. And I think that's a, a very effective way to go and make the most amount of money through time. 
You have to, I think you really have to focus on tilting an allocation. I mean, not dramatically changing an allocation. By allocation, I'm talking about the long-term strategic balance between um, what we call more risky and less risky assets. Um, and, 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 you know, the reason for that is just it's human, human behavior. So if, if you're in position to be putting money in during periods of time, like what happened in March, your psychology is completely different. I mean, you, you know, if you're fully invested, you're, you know, March, you're like, I got to raise some cash. And so then you're, you're selling at the worst possible time. But if you have cash, you're looking around for where can I deploy this cash? And it's, it's a much, much different psychology. And that's the, the, the big benefit of, of, of tilting like that. And, you know, it's why we love uh, ITR's work so much is because if you know where you are, I mean, from the cycle standpoint, if you have a sense of that, um, then you can you you can make those decisions, and you're not going to, you know, find the exact bottom or the exact top. You don't have to. Uh, what you, you just need to know is, yeah, you just need to know. Well, you know, if we're really overvalued right now, okay, so maybe it's time to, um, you know, where I can in a tax efficient, low cost way, um, take some money off the table and save it for the time when we're, you know, vastly undervalued. Um, then you have the 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 money to put in, and it, it just makes a big difference over long term. It takes a disciplined investor to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and that's what we help our clients with. Um, The the last question I'm going to ask, and I I know ever since you put this out there, you're probably, you know, um, you probably get uh, 10 questions about this for every one question about something else. But the 2030s, and I'm not going to ask, is your forecast changed? Because you've already said it's pretty much the same. But what I'm going to ask is, and this is what the, the question is from, from this particular individual is, how do we plan for that? I mean, what should, I mean, that's only eight years away. How do we plan for that? It, it's really similar to what you just said. Um, you capture as much of the upside between now and then as you possibly can. You, don't, you can't afford to go into the cave or take the money off the table because you won't be as well positioned as you should be going into the period. But, uh, you know, you were saying uh, growth versus value, right? I mean, that's sort of a pivot, but on a much grander scale is going to have to occur as we near that 2030 period. And and you're going to do it by uh, tilting rather than flipping a switch overnight so that you can manage the risk aspect of what we're talking about. but right now, it's pedal to the metal time. Take advantage of the situation, whether that's uh, uh, thinking about alternative investments, as we have talked about before, and de-emphasizing the S&P 500 because of movement in the dollar. That's all good. But when we get closer to 2030, um, you're going to have an entirely different strategy in terms of preserving your wealth. It won't be about how can I grow my pot of money. It's going to be about preserving my pot of money at that time. So let's get that part as big as we can between now and then. Okay. All right. With that, uh, Brian, we've answered all the questions that were asked and I really thank you for spending the extra time to, uh, to do so. And I'm sure that people that um, attended the webinar and, and asked these questions will appreciate that we uh, you know, really, you took the time to, to, to go through all of these. So thank you for that. Um, and for all of you listening, if you, another question comes up, um, you can email me. Um, C. Didier, D-I-D-I-E-R, at rwbaird.com.
rwbaird.com or Brian. And Brian gave you his email. Brian, why don't you give that your email one more time so um, our listeners can write that down if they didn't already. It's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at itreconomics.com. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, all always a pleasure people. to work with you, sir. Yeah, uh, you, you too, Brian. Take care of yourself, okay? All right, you too. Take care. Okay.